Good morning. Last week, kind of a big week for me. Uh, it was my birthday. Uh, well, before you applaud, uh, I've reached that point in life where it's just downhill. You know, like there's all these positive birthday milestones, and then you reach that point where it's like they're not as positive anymore. And now it's just another reminder of like passing years. And it's like, man, I'm just, when did I get this old? When did I have to stretch this much before I did something? Like that's, you know, that's like, I, I feel like I need to save 25 minutes before I am active in any way. Otherwise, I walk around like, oh, after I work out, my kids are like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. Like, did you get hit by a car? No, I worked out for 20 minutes. You know, and I've reached that point where it, it, it feels less exciting than it used to. You know, it's just, it's like, oh man, like I'm another year older and I just kind of sometimes have a bad attitude about it. But if I really think about it, it's like, you know, it's not all bad. Like the passing of time has meant good things for me. I, I'm a better husband now than I was when I first got married, mostly because when I first got married, I think the technical term is I was an idiot. So that helps. I'm a better dad now than I was eight years ago when we had our first kid. Uh, I think I'm cooler now. At least I think that. I mean, there's certainly some pictures of my childhood that have some dark fashion choices. So it's not, it's not all bad. It, it, it can feel like that sometimes, right? Like th that being in this situation, it's hard to see the positive. Sometimes we only see the negative. Like we're drawn that way. We want things to be good. We want life to be good, right? Nobody wants life to be awful, you don't see sayings like, life will get worse on a cat poster. You don't see people cross their fingers and saying, oh man, my hope, my life is miserable. Like, we don't want that. We want it to be good. And we're bombarded with all sorts of products and services that are meant to make life better and easier. Like, that's what we see all the time. And now you don't even have to use a remote to turn your TV on. You can just tell your TV to turn on. You know, like none of this, none of this switching a lamp on like this, like what is it, the stone age? Now you can just say, hey, lamp, turn on. I love gadgets like that. Like I love gadgets. And somebody's like, well, Google's listening to everything. It's like Google's listening to everything anyway. If they'll turn my lamp on for me, I'm in. <laughs> that we want life to be good. That's the stuff we look for. We, we, we don't look for stuff that makes it harder or more complicated. What makes it easier and better? We want good and that's why a verse like we're going to talk about today resonates with people. We want life to be good. As we wrap up our series, Bumper Sticker Bible, we're going to look at Romans 8.28. I'm going to read this for you. As it starts off, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, some of you might be familiar with that verse, right? And we know that God causes everything to work together for good. Like, that's the part we like, right? That's, that's exciting. It's like, yeah, okay, I like that. I like that good. Sign me up for good. When we hear verses like this, we, we hear it in the context of people saying things like, you know, hey, everything will work out fine. You know, it'll all be okay. Don't worry. Things will get better. You ever heard things like that? You ever said things like that? We want to believe that's true, and we'll look to verses like this and be like, hey, you know, it's going to be okay. The problem is we know it isn't true. It doesn't always work out. Life isn't always a Hallmark movie, although it does look like one outside right now. And as I thought about this verse this week, it, it hit me. This is hard for me personally. It's been a hard week because I don't do this well. 
I don't do this stuff well. I take failure really hard. I wrestle with discouragement. I want God to make things better the way I want them. But that's not what this verse is saying. The context of of Romans 8 is that Paul, who's the guy who wrote this, he's acknowledging that pain and suffering are a reality. He says earlier in chapter 8, in verse 18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Well, the, revealed, the glory he revealed to us later, it's like, that sounds good. That, that sound, sign me up for that. Is there a, some sort of mailing list or something I need to be on? I will take that good. And we miss the part that he starts with, yet what we suffer now, he's saying it's going to happen. That's just the reality of, of what we experience. And this guy, man, Paul knew pain and suffering. He'd been through some stuff. Paul had been beaten. He'd been imprisoned. He once survived a shipwreck only to make it to shore, sit around a campfire, and then be bitten by a poisonous snake. Like seriously, he almost drowned, didn't drown, and then a poisonous snake bit him. It's like, can he get one of those, a free pass for one of those? He knew what this was like. But he writes here that God is working in all those painful moments for his good. And he does that for us as well. How do we know that's true? What what is good? And why doesn't it always feel or seem good in the moment? We're going to dig into those ideas. First thing we want to take away from this verse is this. Because of Jesus, God's will for you is good. Because of Jesus, God's will for you is good. Right? We like the idea of good. We want good. Nobody's really rejecting good. Like, I'd prefer awful, please. We want good. And that begs the question, all right, good according to who? Who determines what's good? And I think if we're honest, in our worldview, we do, right? We determine what's good. That's certainly the value we hear culturally, right? Find your own good. You determine what's good, you know, all that kind of stuff. And my, my response to that would be, if that's the case, then why are so many people unsatisfied? Why are so many of us unhappy? If we know what's best for us, if we can determine our own good, why are so many of us unhappy? We turn to things like, you know, if only I had a bigger house or a nicer car or a better job or a, a more loving relationship, my life would be good. Or we say things like, if only God would make my parents love me or make my kids behave or heal this illness or take away this pain, my life would be good. Sometimes people will even look to to this verse as a promise that as long as we love God, God will do good things for us, right? All right, if I do good, if I go to church, if I pray, if I I give, if I do all that stuff, then, then God will do good things for me. But that's a transactional relationship and that puts us in the driver's seat, not God. When we are the ones who are determining what is good for us, we are or putting ourselves in charge. We're saying, I get to define that. And here's the reality. We don't know. If we knew what was good for ourselves, we would do it and we would find this deep satisfaction that we, we desire. If we can't find it, we have to acknowledge that maybe we aren't the best judge of that, that maybe the God who created us and knows us is, and that God isn't saying, hey, Josh, what, what do you, help me out here. What do you, what do you think is good? I'd love, I'd love to know. I mean, I realize I'm the sovereign creator of the universe and you have literally no experience running things at this level, but please, by all means, fill me in. 
Because that's kind of how, how we operate. It's like, oh, but I'm different. If you just, God, if you just knew, I know what I need. We don't know. I find it interesting that the words that this verse starts with, and we know that God causes everything to work together, and we know, in this verse, refer less to the individual experience and more to the communal experience. And what I, what I mean by that is the, those words point to the larger experience of God with people. They point to the Bible as our collective history. And, and that allows us to say, even if, if I can't see this to be true in my present circumstances, I can look to my previous experiences and I can look to others' previous experiences to be reminded of the way that God has shown up in the lives of others and, and throughout the Bible so that I can remember again, this is who God is, that God is who he says he is, that, that this is who he is and how he works. What I love is that God is, is not only making it it applies to us personally, but he's broadening it out to go, I don't want you to be in the driver's seat because it's too easy for you to be distracted or confused or not see what I'm doing. He's saying, look at the big picture because we can get consumed by the moment, right? We can be consumed by the circumstance and go, where is God in the midst of this? This can't possibly be good. We are so bad at stepping out beyond that and looking at it in a much wider lens. And that's why God is saying, look at this in a bigger way so that we can know that, that God has been faithful to me and been faithful to others. And we can see that throughout the Bible, even if we don't know anybody who could say that and, and realize that God has proven himself over and over and over again. So what is God's good? Well, I want to read you some verses. I want to read you the end of Romans chapter 8. I just want you to let this sink in and wash over you. Paul says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them, given them right standing, he gave them his glory. He talks about this good, and it's left a little vague on purpose because we want to know what specific good God will do for us, right? We want to know what specific good, but the big good that was just talked about there is being made more like Jesus. It's being made more like Jesus. It's God conforming us to his will for our lives, his desire for us, because he's the one who truly knows and conforming us to the character of his son. We don't get to determine what our own good is and then demand that God make it happen. We don't get that. God tells us what our good is because he's the one that knows. Being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus, being made more like him, and he works that out in the lives of those who know and love him. That's what good means. Folks, being made more like Jesus is a difficult and sometimes it's a painful process because he was perfect and we are less so. Less so. Think about it like this. I, I like this show called Wheeler Dealers. It's a British car show. Anybody know Wheeler Dealers? Anybody? I love this show. I love it for two reasons. One, I don't need all the drama that sometimes in, in like reality shows. Like I don't, so I feel bad, but it's like I don't care about their personalities. Just teach me about this. Like I love learning. Like teach me about cars. I, I find it fascinating. But the other reason I like it is because they're British. And so everything they say sounds awesome. And they have these crazy sayings. Like one guy was like, trying to say they're joking around. He's like, they must be having a Turkish. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds super cool. <laughs> but they'd find these cars, like these, these significant cars, and they'd restore them 
back to their former glory and restoring those cars to, to like new. I mean, that's, a, that's not easy, right? You're going to have to cut off a lot of rust. You're going to have to replace a lot of broken parts. You're going to have to repair a lot of, of stuff that's not right with the car. I mean, that's a lot of work to make that happen. That's what it's like for us as well. It's a difficult process. Being made like Jesus is a difficult process. It's a painful process. Stuff needs to be cut off. Stuff needs to be repaired. Stuff needs to be fixed. I mean, that's just how we are. We come broken. And in God making us more like his son, he makes us whole. Jesus suffered. So being like him means experiencing some of the same things. But the hope that we have that we see in this verse is that it's not without purpose because God is, as the verse says, at work for our good, for our good. He wants to do something in us that will be far better, far, far better than anything we could experience on our own. He wants to develop our character, our faith, our trust. He wants to grow our love, our patience, our gentleness, our self-control, God wants to see that stuff happen in us. And I get that personally. I mean, that really hits me because I know the more connected I am with Jesus, the more I spend time with him, the better I am, the better husband that I am, the better father that I am, the better pastor, the better friend that I am. All those things are true. I I like who I am more, the more connected I am with Jesus. And the inverse is true as well. The less connected I am, the worse I am at all those things. Because then the dominant energy in my life is me. The dominant movement in my life is me and my brokenness and my sinful nature and my selfishness instead of the dominant force being Jesus at work in my life. God making me more like him. God's desire is for our good. It's for our good. God is for us. He wants us to experience good, deeper, more meaningful, and, more, and longer lasting good than we can possibly imagine. And that leads us to the second thing we can take away, which is because of Jesus, God's care for you is deep. God's care for you is deep. Paul continues on in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, what shall we say about, about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. God is working to make us more like Jesus because he cares about us so deeply. Paul asks these, this series of rhetorical questions, which was a common teaching method at this time, and he answers them because what he wants to do is set up the scenario where it's like, can anyone stand against you if, if you know Jesus? No, no one can. He's reminding us this is how big God is. This is how much God loves us. This is how deeply he cares God knows deep down that that's how we experience the life we long to know, the good that we are searching for. Kintsugi is a traditional Japanese art form where broken pottery or ceramics are put back together and that the the breaks, instead of being hidden, are enhanced 
The broken pieces are traditionally joined with a lacquer that's mixed with precious metals like gold or silver or sometimes platinum. And this pottery is, is put back together and restored. And this is what the end result looks like. It's beautiful. The flaws aren't ignored or forgotten in that bowl. They aren't smoothed out or removed. They're highlighted. The flaws are made into something beautiful. They point to the care and the effort that was taken to put this piece back together. They show that someone cared deeply enough to lovingly restore this broken mess back into something useful and valuable. Folks, that's what God is doing for us through Jesus. That we bring our our hot steaming mess of brokenness And God makes something beautiful out of it. And what we want is for the the mistakes to be hidden away and to be, we don't want those to be seen. We, We try and just kind of hold our mess together with just the sheer force of will. And my question would be, how's that working for you? Probably about as well as it is for me. But God steps in and says, no, where you see failure, I see the opportunity for growth. Where you see embarrassment, I see the opportunity to to shine, to point to, to the work that I'm doing in your life. And so these mistakes are highlighted because it shows the work of the creator in our lives. It shows that God is able to take something and and the fix it so that the end result is even more valuable and beautiful than what he started with. So that instead of seeing this broken mess, we see this beautiful piece of art. That's what God does in and through us. And I love the way that these things are worded. Paul's really trying to hammer this home by saying, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? And he explains that by saying, if God did not even spare his own son, if God did not even spare what was most valuable to him, Why wouldn't he give us everything else? He's saying God loves us so much he would trade the life of his son for ours. Why wouldn't he also let us experience joy and happiness and fulfillment? For God to give us the greatest thing he could give us and not anything else, it wouldn't make sense. Paul wants this to hit deeply in our hearts. And he says, No one can dare accuse us anymore because we've wronged God more than we could possibly have hurt anyone else. What we've said to God through our rebellion from him, through our sin is we don't need you, God. I don't need you. That's really what we say. I don't need you to find good or happiness. I don't need you. Imagine if you said that to someone that you love. How much would that hurt? Imagine if someone you love said that to you. How much would that sting? That's what we say to God. And yet God says, I love you. And so I stepped into your story through my son to to rescue you back to me. And because I have done that, because I have have paid the, the most significant claim against you, no one else has anything left to say. Because I have declared you right with me. Because I have made you whole in this way. No one else has anything to hold against you. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, if we mess up, we don't need to apologize or make it right. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that the shame, the pain, the hurt, the stigma of those things can fall away because God has declared us right with him. 
not because of what we've done, in spite of what we've done, but because of who he is and because of his son. Understanding this, understanding this, this is what helps us change the question from why is this happening to me to what is God trying to teach me, right? Because folks, if we're honest, we want God to change our circumstances. God wants to change us. We want God to step in and change our circumstances, just fix it and make it right. And God knows us well enough to, to, to know if I, if I do that and don't, and don't change you, you will face this again. But if I change you, then the way you handle circumstances in the future is different. It's radically different. I don't think it's wrong to ask God to change our circumstances. I think God invites us to do that. But what God knows is most significant is changing us. That's what helps us move from why is this happening to me to what is God trying to teach me? One writer says it this way. I love this. God sent his son in our likeness that we might eventually be like him. The third thing that these verses point us to is that because of Jesus, God's love for you is forever. Because of Jesus, God's love for you is forever. Paul finishes this chapter by saying, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? What he's saying is, if we experience hardship, does that mean God no longer loves us? He goes on to say, as the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. He's quoting the Old Testament there. He says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Not a two-point victory, not a minor victory. Overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus. And he ends by saying, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, nothing. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. Nothing. Nothing will be able to separate us from God's love. He's trying to paint this picture of opposites. Neither this nor this, neither this nor this. He's saying nothing you can think of. Nothing will be able to separate you from God's love. You cannot outrun him. You cannot outsin him. You cannot ignore him enough that God's love is that big. Not pain, not hurt, not fear, not doubt, not small mistakes, not huge failures. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that he's shown through Jesus. And that's why he says, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? There's a condition though. There always is, right? It feels like there's always a condition. This can only be experienced through Jesus. And sometimes we'll hear this and it's like, I like that, but I want that on my terms. And God says, it is yours. And I want you to know that. And I have made this accessible to you, but you can only know it through Jesus. That's why Romans 28, 8, 28 says, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And that's why verse 39 ends with, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It says, we can only know this through Jesus. Jesus talks about this in John 16, 
Verse 33, when he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Not on your own, but in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He has beat the snot out of the world. He has won this victory, and he invites us to be part of that through him. It paints this picture of a hugely massive, one-sided, unconditional love that is forever, that we can know and experience when we trust Jesus, when we say, God, I know I can't do this on my own, and I know that your son has come to live the life I should have lived and die the death I should have died. When we know Jesus that way, these are the promises that are ours. It's this forever love that brings freedom and life and transformation. C.S. Lewis says it like this, though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. And how lucky are we that it doesn't? How fortunate are we that God doesn't love the way we love? There's no strings attached. There's no conditions. Instead, he says, know Jesus and this is all yours. That's what he wants. And that kind of love is motivating. It's powerful. Because when we talk about life and the stuff that we go through and the pain we experience, how can we possibly believe that God is at work for our good in that? Well, this is why we can. Because we know that he's for us, not against us. He is for our good, not for our harm. That he loves us so much that nothing can separate us from that. That we can experience what we can experience with hope because we know God has promised. God has promised that he loves me. God is the perfect parent. He's the perfect parent that knows sometimes you got to let your kids experience hard things because that lesson is what's valuable. My default as a parent is to protect them. I don't want them to experience pain. Like I, I want to protect them, but I don't love them when, when I do that because they need to, there are things they need to learn. They need to learn that the street is dangerous and cars don't see small people sometimes. My four-year-old accidentally touched a dish out of the oven this week and burned her hand. And she told me about it for the rest of the night. It was very sweet. But it's also like, oh, right here. It's like, yeah, I right, see that. You think, I think you'll make it though. But there's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in that. I don't take joy in, in seeing her hurt but hopefully she will learn that those things are hot and avoid them in the future. We want God to change our circumstances. God wants to change us. God wants to change us. Where are you seeking your good right now? Where are you seeking your good? Where are you seeking what you think you know is best? What would it look like for you to seek God's good? What would that look like? What would it look like to say, God, you know me better than I do? How do I seek you in the midst of this? Are you convinced, like Paul is, that God loves you that much? That he is for you? That he cares about you? That he wants good for you? Are you convinced of that? Because I think if you were, if I was, my life would look a little different. Because that shapes everything else, right? Man, if I could just live like I am convinced that God is for me that way, that he loves me that much. But when we start to struggle, when we start to, to wander, it's when we doubt God's goodness. When we're like, well, is he that good though? Because man, I, I really wish he'd make this 
turn out differently than it is? And, and is he good if he's not doing what I want? A question that I've been thinking about a lot this week. In terms of what do we do with this? How do we put this into practice? Is this, how can I honor God in this moment right now? And I mean literally this moment right now. How can I do that? How can I love Jesus in this moment right now? How can I break it down into a small bite-sized chunk and say, I believe that God is for me. I believe that God wants good for me. How can I love him in this moment right now? Folks, what's God doing in your life? He's doing something. What's he doing? We're all different. I don't know what it is for you. What's he doing in your life and how can that be for your good? How's he trying to make you more like Jesus? Mark had just worked, Matt, sorry, Matt, had just worked a long shift. He's a paramedic in Georgia and he's driving home. He's tired. And he began to doze off at the wheel and he crossed the center lane of traffic and, and hit a car in the, in the opposite lane head on. And it killed the woman who's driving it and it injured her 19-month-old in the back seat. And at the hospital, he found out that the woman had been pregnant. So she and her unborn child had died. And Matt is just overcome. For Eric, his world had just changed forever. This is his family. He's lost his wife. He's lost his unborn daughter. What do you do? How must that have felt to experience that kind of loss in that, in a, just in a moment? I think we'd understand if he was angry at God. I think we'd understand if he was angry with this, with this guy, if he's angry with Matt. I think we'd understand that because of all that he had just lost in a moment, all that had been taken away. Matt was just broken by this. He said... I can still see it. I can still smell it. He said, I'm supposed to be a helper, and I'm the one that caused this. These two men are broken by this moment. But God was at work in Eric's heart. I'm not even sure how he's able to do this, but he, he said in an interview, he remembered a message that he heard in a sermon he said, in moments where tragedy happens or even hurt, there's opportunities to demonstrate grace or to exact vengeance. Here was an opportunity where I could do that, and I chose to demonstrate grace. Eric declined to pursue the maximum sentence possible for Matt. And two years later on the anniversary of the accident, Eric met Matt outside of a supermarket he walked over to Matt and he told him that he forgave him. Imagine that moment. Many years later, these guys are still friends. Eric had said, I don't know what you're going to say to this, but I just feel in my spirit like I'm supposed to stay connected to you somehow. And Matt felt the same. And so even though Matt still wrestles and, and, and agonizes about what he's done, He's been forgiven, and this friendship has blossomed. 
And I got to imagine that the only way that Eric can possibly do what he did is because he believes this to be true. He believes this to be true. That God is at work. That we don't know why these things happen. And certainly this is not ever something that he would have wanted. And this is a moment that has defined his life, but he chose to respond by saying, I believe that there is purpose in this and that God must be at work, not just through me, but also in me. And he chose to forgive when he would have had every reason to not. Matt had done nothing to deserve his forgiveness and everything to not deserve it, but still Eric chose to forgive. That's what God has done for us. And I gotta believe that the only way this is possible It's because Eric knows that God works everything together for the good of those who love him. Matt has been able to see a real life picture of the forgiveness of God in a way he never would have seen otherwise because of the way that Eric responded to this. It's a powerful example. We're going to try something a little different this morning as we close. Romans 8, 38 and 39 are, are so powerful, right? They contain some big, massive, important, meaningful truths. And so we're going to read those verses together. Now, if you're one of those people who doesn't like to do these kinds of things, please know you are my people. I also do not. But I'm going to ask you to be willing to step out of your comfort zone for a moment if you'd be willing to. Because we want to give you an opportunity to engage with these words in a new way. To let this truth wash over you. So we're going to put these words on the screen so you can read them out loud together with me. Because our hope is that you can see these words and know that no matter what you're going through, no matter the pain you feel, no matter the difficulty, no matter your experience right now, you can know with confidence that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that is true. It's just humbling and challenging to hear that and to think, that's how much you love me. That's how much you love us. Father, would you help us to understand that you are for our good, that what we think is our good is rarely what you, the good you have for us, Lord. Would you help that truth to sink into our hearts in a new way this morning? Father, we thank you that you love us that much to work in our lives, even when we don't want you to. Father, draw us to yourself that we would be moved by what it means to be known and loved by the God of the universe. Speak hope into our pain, Lord. Help us to know that you are there and that you are at work. We thank you and we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.